what God is doing at, at Not By Works and at Cornerstone Bible Institute. It's such a joy to get to uh, be a part of uh, both uh, organizations and, um, and uh, just covet your prayers. We're looking forward to a great fall. And, um, and I was here, I was kind of overhearing some of the conversations before the uh, service day, and I, I, I don't remember who it was, but I heard somebody talking about going to Frontier, and I just wanted to say, man, Frontier is a great Bible school. In fact, it's the second best Bible school in the area, so uh, <laughs> praise God for that. And, uh, and uh, I mean, I, for me personally, I like the, to go to the best, but, uh, but anyway, um, so uh, uh, before I get started, I, I'm not going to give you a long uh, commercial or update on everything, but I do want to remind you, since this is our last day here, about two of our newest resources. Uh, and this includes, as we're talking about grace, this is a, a book about grace and about the gospel and the death and resurrection of Christ. It's called Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell and the One Reason No One Ever Has to. And uh, that's brand new, and we're really excited about that. I know you'll enjoy that. And then uh, our newest DVD set, which just came out, is called Spirit of the Antichrist, The Gathering Cloud of Deception. And uh, this is uh, 18 videos, over 14 hours of content, 10 different discs, and uh, talks about, indeed, the gathering cloud of deception, what Satan is doing as he's trying to deceive the world. You know, First John tells us the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, and as he is kind of getting ready for God's end times plan to roll out, he doesn't know the timetable any more than we do, only God does, but he's getting ready and uh, deceiving the world. So it's very uh, real-time, deals with a lot of the stuff that, that's been going on in our world, and deals with a lot of topics that you don't often hear uh, Bible-based teaching on. For example, what does the Bible say about UFOs and paranormal activity? You ever thought about it? Well, it's in here. So that's uh, back there. And then uh, one, whether you are able to get any of the resources or not, we would love to stay in touch with you. So fill out this little card that says uh, sign up for our newsletter with your email. All you do is put your email on there and then we'll, uh, you'll get our newsletters that come out regularly that tell you kind of what's going on. A lot of free videos and podcasts and articles that I write every week and things like that. So uh, check that out back at the uh, resource table. Well, as we continue um, this series, Grace All Over the Place, I was sure encouraged last night just to kind of begin by saturating ourselves and reminding ourselves of, of the foundation of grace, that, that it all begins with grace. Our God is a God of grace, amen? And uh, grace in the first place is what we started out uh, talking about. And, and, and this morning, as we continue with the second session, we want to go from grace in the first place to sort of now what? Uh, we've experienced the marvelous, matchless grace of our Lord. We've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. We're born again and part of the family of God. Now what? Uh, what does it look like uh, in the life uh, of a believer? So we're called to grow in grace. And 2 Peter 3.18 comes to mind where Peter says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So ultimately, grace finds its landing place when we see Jesus face to face, and we're going to talk about that in the second session. But between coming to know the Lord by faith and, and, and passing from this earth into the timeless eternity and being face to face with our Savior, uh, there's a lot of stuff that happens, you know. We are bound uh, in this sin-stricken world, and we're called to be lights in this perverse generation, as the Apostle Paul says. 
and uh, we have to navigate the ups and downs and the suffering of this fallen world. How do we do it? Well, we do it by grace. The same way we came to a relationship with Jesus in the first place is the same way that we are able to sustain it. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Now, as we get into this session today, I want to focus particularly on grace during tough times. Uh, you know, this is, uh, these are unprecedented times uh, for Christians in America. We are facing things that many of us never thought we'd have to face in our lifetime. Now, it's not new in the grand scheme of things because there are brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe who have suffered intense persecution far worse than what we've experienced so far. Uh, and, of course, over 2,000 years of church history, uh, there's been all kinds of suffering. So we've been really blessed and, frankly, sheltered here in the West, uh, but that's changing. And if you don't know or recognize that's changing, then uh, you need to look around because there are some very troubling things happening, uh, and the, the life as we know it is sort of uh, changing before our very eyes and very rapidly. We get into that in spirit of the Antichrist, the gathering cloud of deception. I think it's a sign of the times. Again, we can't set dates. We're not here to speculate. Uh, the Bible says the next great prophetic event is the rapture, which we talked about a couple of years ago when I was here. Um, but nevertheless, Jesus said, you know, he, he rebuked the Pharisees in the first century by saying, you know, you can look at the clouds and discern the weather, but you can't discern the signs of the times. Well, we don't want to make the same mistake. So I think the stage is definitely being set, and we need to be prepared. Uh, and part of being prepared is recognizing that God's grace is sufficient. You remember the famous passage in 2 Corinthians 12 when uh, Paul said, my, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I think for many of us who know the Lord and are growing in our sanctification process, becoming more and more like Christ and seeking to grow in our faith and become spiritually mature. We recognize the presence of grace in our day-to-day -day lives, but we've never had to really appreciate it the way so many Christians have for so long in the face of suffering. But that's about to change. And so I'm calling this message Grace for the Race. And uh, these two verses in Hebrews, I've been teaching through Hebrews in my uh, home church at Plum Creek Chapel in Sedalia, uh, Colorado. If you're ever in that Denver area, we'd love to have you come out and visit us. Uh, but these two verses in Hebrews are really a powerful summation of much of the exhortation of the entire letter. It segues nicely right out of chapter 11 in that great hall of faith, we call it, where the writer of Hebrews gives several examples, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Uh, but it also really serves as a uh, just sort of a pivotal call to action based on everything he said so far in uh, the letter. And to introduce this message uh, this morning, I'd like to tell you the story of a marathon runner. I want to take you back in your mind's eye to the year 1980. You may be familiar with Rosie Ruiz. Rosie Ruiz was a Cuban-American marathoner who had moved to America from Havana when she was eight years old. And on April 21st, 1980, Ruiz won the Boston Marathon's female category with a time of two hours, 31 minutes, and 56 seconds. It was the fastest female time ever in Boston Marathon history, as well as the third fastest 
female time ever recorded in any marathon. Well, suspicions quickly mounted that something was not right about Ruiz's run. Observers noticed, for example, that Ruiz was not panting or coated in sweat, and her thighs were less lean and muscular than would be expected for a world-class runner. In addition, her time, record-breaking time, of 2 hours and 31 minutes and 56 seconds was a striking, almost unbelievable improvement, more than 25 minutes ahead of her reported time just six months earlier in the New York City Marathon. When asked by a reporter why she didn't seem fatigued after the grueling race, she said, well, I got up with a lot of energy this morning. <laughs> well, some female competitors thought it was odd that when Ruiz was asked why she, uh, what she had noticed about the suburb of Wellesley, which the, the marathon course runs through, she didn't mention all the students at Wellesley College who traditionally cheer loudly for the first female runners as they pass the campus. Most significantly, though, no other runners could recall seeing her. She later released stress test results showing that her resting heart rate was 76. Well, a typical female marathoner has a resting heart rate of in the 50s. Canadian runner Jacqueline Garreau was told that she was leading the race at the 18-mile mark. You know, in these marathons, as you pass certain points, they kind of let you know where you stand in the race. And when she passed the 18-mile mark, she was told she was leading, and Patty Lyons was told she was second at the 17-mile mark, and Ruiz couldn't have passed either of these ladies without being seen. Several spotters at checkpoints throughout the course also didn't remember seeing Ruiz and the first group of women, and she never showed up in any pictures or video footage. Well, as you're beginning to tell, it turns out she hadn't run the entire race. She jumped onto the course less than a mile from the finish line. Two spectators, Harvard students John Faulkner and Sola Mahoney, recalled seeing Ruiz burst out of a crowd of onlookers on Commonwealth Avenue half a mile from the finish. I mean, Rosie really didn't think this plan uh, through very well. After a short and swift investigation, she was stripped of her title eight days after the race. Although she never publicly admitted the fraud, she did admit it privately to an acquaintance. She told the acquaintance that she had jumped out of the crowd not knowing that the first women hadn't already gone by. And she said, believe me, I was as shocked as anyone that I came in first. <laughs> it was later discovered that she had cheated in the New York City Marathon as well. Not surprisingly, Ruiz went on to live a life of crime, being arrested multiple times spending time in prison over the years for embezzlement and even cocaine dealing. Sadly, Rosie Ruiz died just two summers ago, July 8, 2019. She didn't finish the Boston or New York City marathons well, and she didn't finish the race of life well either. What would cause someone to take the easy way out in a race? Well, that's the question before us as we take a look at Hebrews chapter 12. The Christian life is a race. It's a journey. It involves ups and downs, good times and difficult times, accomplishments and failures, joy and heartache. It involves moments of beaming pride and times of regret. But how can we run this race effectively? 
You know, the Bible gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And we already saw how grace pervades every aspect of the Christian life. But how can we run the race effectively? My father-in-law used to tell the joke about the preacher who preached a particularly long message. Not sure why he told me that joke, but anyway. Uh, and uh, and uh, he, he asked some older fellow in the congregation, hey, what would you think of my message? And the fellow says, well, it was great, but it would have been better if you'd have quit when you were through. <laughs> well, that might be good advice for a preacher or teacher or speech giver, quit when you're through. But when it comes to the Christian life, maybe a better way to say it is make sure you quit when you're through. Don't quit until you're through. Finish strong. Finish strong. Our church history is filled with example after example of Christians who quit before they were through. Christians who gave up when the going got tough, dropped out because they couldn't handle it or tried to take a shortcut around life's difficulties. So from these two verses, I just want to point out five ways to finish strong in the race of life, a race that is saturated by grace. And the first step is this, learn from the saints. Learn from the saints. Now, I don't have to tell this biblically astute crowd that the word saint doesn't mean what a lot of people think it means. It's kind of evolved into something it's not. The Catholic Church taught that saints were those people who were highly venerated and achieved quasi-divine status, and we should pray to them. But the Bible knows nothing of that sort of thing. A saint in Scripture is one who is saved by faith and part of the family of God, a brother or sister in Christ. We see examples of the word used throughout the New Testament this way. For example, Paul said in Romans 15 at the end, but now I am going to minister to Jerusalem and to minister to the saints there, brothers and sisters in Christ. Or in 1 Corinthians 14, he said, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Often Paul's letters begin uh, with an address to the saints. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, for example. The writer of Hebrews uses the word saints twice in his letter, including at the very end when he says, Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. And all the saints. So if we go back to our first point here, when we say learn from the saints, we're talking about learning from brothers and sisters in Christ. And the writer has just gone over in chapter 11 a long list of saints, of brothers in Christ, who served as an incredible example of men and women of faith. And the method of sanctification, the method of living out our lives as Christians on earth, is always the same as the method of justification, how you got saved to begin with. It's a life of faith, by grace through faith. You trust God with the most important thing in life, which is your eternal destiny. You trust God to forgive your sins and give you the gift of eternal life through the shed blood of His Son and our Savior. And yet how often, having exercised that faith in the gospel, do we then turn and try to live our lives in the flesh, in our own strength? So we get to verse 1 in Hebrews chapter 12 and we read, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The word therefore points back not only to the immediate hall of faith in chapter 11, but to the entire argument that the author has been making in the epistle. 
In other words, in light of the superiority of Christ, a point that He's made from the beginning. In light of the rewards that await us in the coming kingdom, the future earthly kingdom. In light of the example set by great men and women of faith that have gone before us, let us run with endurance. Let us endure. Then he goes on to say, we also, we also, this has been a technique of the writer. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, by the way. I guess I should have contextualized it for you a bit. It was written in the late 60s AD, roughly 67 to 69 during the, the horrific reign of Nero. And many believers were being persecuted and even burned at the stake and rounded up. And, uh, and, and they were facing intense persecution. And the, the audience to which this letter is written uh, was addressed to Christian Jews, Jews who had converted to Christianity, many of them probably on the day of Pentecost 30 years earlier. Uh, many of them had gotten saved since then, but this, these were folks that had been saved a long time, a lot of them. And yet, because of the persecution, they were contemplate distancing, contemplating distancing themselves from Christianity, forsaking the assembling of themselves together in order to save their physical lives. They were not gathering together. They didn't want to be seen with Christians. They wanted to retreat to what they perceived as the safe haven of Judaism uh, because Judaism was still sort of in cahoots with Rome at that point. And the writer says, no, don't do that. Hang on to the faith. He never suggests that doing so would end up discounting their salvation or somehow send them to hell. But he says, yeah, there's some pretty serious consequences for Christians who quit before they're through. And, uh, and he talks about a lot of them. But one of his techniques in challenging those original readers, and by extension us now and any believer over the last 2,000 years who has the Word of God, one of his techniques is to include himself. He frequently uses the first person plural, as he does here. We also, we also, we are facing tough times. We are in this together. How can we uh, get through it? You know, you've heard of the, the Me Too movement. Well, this is the Bible's We Too movement, right? We too, we also are all in this together. But we too what? Well, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So he's appealing directly back to the preceding chapter. And uh, he talks about these great men and women of faith. That word witnesses that you see there, the last word highlighted in yellow, it's the Greek word martus. It's where we get our English word martyr. It's used 34 times, Martus is, in the Greek New Testament. And it refers most commonly to those who have witnessed or testified. So we think of a martyr as someone who lays down their life, and it does appear sometimes like that. But most of the time, it just means an example or a witness or someone who's testifying to something by way of an example. For example, when Jesus is giving instruction about a dis disciplining a believer in the assembly, he refers to two or three witnesses. That's the word martus, same word, martus. Or Acts 1.8, uh, when Jesus said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Same word. And of course, the ultimate witness is Jesus Christ himself, which is a point the writer of Hebrews makes throughout his letter. In the book of Revelation, we read Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the faithful witness. And even in our text this morning, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we're going to see him appeal once again, not only to the great cloud of witnesses, but to the one and only great witness, Jesus Christ. Uh, but the word witness sometimes does mean martyr in the traditional sense. For example, in Acts uh, 22, when Paul is addressing the mob in the riot in Jerusalem, 
uh, after, right after that riot, and he refers to Stephen as a martyr, as a martyr. So if we go back to the text, I think the saints of old that this writer is pointing us to and from whom we can learn a thing or two were both. They were witnesses in the sense that they were examples, but many of them also paid the ultimate price. They were both a model and a motivation. A model and a motivation. If they can do it, so can we. So the first step in finishing strong is to learn from the saints of old. You know, the top athletes in their field all achieve greatness by studying other great athletes. They watch film. They learn their techniques. I mean, this is true in any field. You know, world-class chess players, for example, study thousands of past games by other top players to learn from them and to learn their moves. If you want to finish strong, it begins by looking back. There's a lot to learn from those who have been there before us. And that's why I recommend you know, reading Christian biographies now and then. Uh, you know, some, some of the great men and women of the faith, boy, just listening to their stories and seeing how they held up and endured during uh, a kind of race that many of us, frankly, have been unfamiliar with. But the second step that we see in the text here is to lay aside the sins. We've got to get rid of those fleshly sins that hold us back. Now, what do we mean by this? Well, of course... We can never achieve sinless perfection this side of glory, but we can grow in our spiritual life so that certain sins become less of a problem. Now, just as an athlete learns how to correct mistakes that he might be prone to, like a golfer who tries to overcome his tendency to slice the ball, right? Uh, we too can grow in our spiritual walk and learn how to lay aside or avoid those behaviors that have a tendency to set us back called spiritual maturity. Notice what he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Simple fact of the matter is sin and the spiritual life don't mix. You cannot be living a sinful life and hope to finish the spiritual race strong at the same time. As we grow in the spirit and in the knowledge of God's word, as we grow in grace, as we read in 2 Peter 3.18, we become more sensitive to the Spirit's convicting presence. We begin to more readily recognize the traps of the devil that try to get us off course. As we mature in the faith, we're able to withstand temptation more often. In the case of the book of Hebrews, the writer had already, in chapters 5 and 6, around there, he had rebuked his readers for their immature faith. He said, you ought to be teachers by now. But you've regressed. As I said, some of them had been Christians for decades, but they hadn't stayed strong. They hadn't stayed in the Word. They hadn't grown. You know, the Christian life is a struggle, as we shall see in a moment. And it involves recognizing our weaknesses and overcoming them. In Galatians 5, Paul said, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You cannot be walking in the Spirit and reveling in sin at the same time. Why not? Well, because as Paul goes on to say, these are contrary to one another. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So if we go back to the text. Notice he says, lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. That phrase, which so easily ensnares us, is actually just one word in Greek. One word. It's the only time it's ever used. 
And it literally is translated so easily in Snaros here in the New King James. In the King James, it was the old word beset. That's where we get the idea of besetting sins, the sins that so easily beset us. But one lexicon describes this word as entangling and holding on tight. Entangling and holding on tight, so easily ensnare us. I think the author is making kind of a conceptual play on words here. And instead of letting sin easily encompass us, he says, we should call to mind the witnesses of the faith whose examples encompass all around us and surround us. And we should fix our eyes there until, as he says in the second verse, we contemplate Christ. And then our gaze, our glance rather, becomes a gaze as we shift to the ultimate uh, Martus, the ultimate example. So what he's saying is don't be dragged down by these sins. Don't let them uh, encompass and entangle us and hold on tight to us. Throw them off. Get rid of them. Just like an athlete will be determined to get rid of whatever those bad habits are. Uh, I can remember I played basketball in high school and I, I can remember I, when I was first learning in junior high, I had a ha- habit of my elbow. I'm right-handed, my el- elbow kind of floating out. And my coach made me, you know, forced me to keep my elbow in and shoot hundreds of free throws until it became second nature. And guess what? Before long, I, it never, my elbow never drifted out. I, it was just, it was, I, it was a habit, right? And that, I think, is what he's saying here that needs to happen with these sins. Throw off those those bad habits. You never think of entering an important athletic contest without first formulating a plan or a strategy and working on the weaknesses. So likewise, why would we get up each morning for the next leg in the race of the Christian life without planning ahead and determining how we're going to handle those sins that so easily beset us? Well, how do we do that? Romans gives us a good example. You know, the book of Romans, chapter 6 to 8, is all about that struggle with sin, that old man, new man battle. In fact, in chapter 7, Paul eloquently describes that battle in his own life as a believer. And he says, you know, the things that I know I shouldn't do, I end up doing. And the things that I don't, you know, don't do, I know I should be doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body? That's a description of what Paul teaches throughout his epistles. The old man, new man, the flesh, the spirit, walking by faith, walking by sight, those types of analogies that... Uh, he uses. Romans chapter 7 is not talking about the unbeliever. You see a lot of people teach that Christians don't have a sin nature and that if you're sinning or struggling with sin, you're probably not saved. That's a horrible doctrine and a horrible teaching and it does not understand grace. Anyone who suggests you look at behavior to validate whether or not you're a child of God does not understand grace. Because Paul tells us in Romans 4 that whatever is of grace is not of works, and whatever is of works is not of grace. So looking at your behavior and concluding your eternal destiny uh, is not biblical at all. But in this section of Romans, he starts out by saying, How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And you remember the passage, he goes on to talk about how we've been buried with Christ. We've died when we got saved and trusted Christ. The old man died. So every time we sin as a believer, we're resurrecting that old man. Another analogy he uses here is that we uh, have been set freed from sin, he says. You know, sin is like a prison house. 
And when you come to faith in Christ, the doors burst open and you're no longer held by those shackles of the old man. You're a new man. You're a new person in Christ. You have a new identity. Your position is in Christ. You're part of the family of God. You're a child of the King. And so he says here, reckon yourselves dead to sin. Dead to sin. Did you realize that in the great, incredible doctrinal treatise of Romans, this is the first use of an imperative in the Greek text right here. You don't find one anywhere until you get to Romans 6, verse 11, where Paul says, reckon yourselves dead to sin. That's the command. The command is to consider who you are in Christ and stop imprisoning yourself again to sin. We, we love to watch old uh, Andy Griffith shows at our house. And, of course, who can forget all the times that Barney Fife uh, hilariously walks back into that little jail cell in in Mayberry, and then slams the door shut behind him and then goes, you know, what, what happened? Andy, get me out of here. You know, well, that's a good word picture for what it's like when a believer sins. It's like we're voluntarily going back into the prison from which we've been set free and slamming that door shut behind us. So lay aside the sins. One reason so many believers fail to finish strong is because they've confined themselves back into the prison house of sin. And that limits our effectiveness. So learn from the saints, lay aside the sins. And number three, lean into the suffering. Lean into the suffering. Now here's where it gets a little hard. And you have to, again, remember the context that these original recipients were facing. They were facing persecution the likes of which most of us in this room probably have not faced. So he's dealing with the issue at hand for them head on. What his readers were facing required endurance. Now, this was no easy race. This was not a casual morning jog or some kind of stroll in the park. These were not first world problems. They were experiencing intense suffering. You know, suffering is one of the easiest ways to derail the Christian. You know, most Christians don't have a, a good track record, if you'll pardon the pun, when it comes to suffering. We just don't. We tend to obsess about our pain. When something tragic rocks our world in the flesh, we instinctively shift into the blame game. You know, I discuss how suffering affects unbelievers and sometimes keeps them from believing the gospel in a couple of different chapters in uh, top 10 reasons. But you know the reality is suffering can have an effect on believers as well. And the writer of Hebrews challenges us to lean into that suffering. Don't recoil, don't get bitter, don't shake your fist toward heaven, lean into it, accept it. See, We live in a fallen world. It's not God's fault that we ate the apple proverbially speaking. Uh, you know, the whole world is under the sway of, wicked, of the wicked one. This is the uh, world sold under the curse of sin. It's because of sin that roses have thorns and there's poison ivy and there's hurricanes and avalanches and tornadoes and volcanoes. The whole earth is groaning because of the curse of sin. Uh, so when we face suffering, God's grace is there to help us get through it. He's not the cause of the suffering. He's not there to be blamed. God wants to use suffering in our life. 
And uh, he wants us to know that we can always come out of the other side of this deep, dark valley. So if we go back to the text, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now I want to point out two key words in this last part of verse 1. The first word is the word race. The word race, it's kind of the, the uh, inspiration behind the title that I gave this uh, message. But the word race is an interesting word in Greek. It's the word agon. Agon. It's where we get the English word agony. Agony. It's only used the noun anyway six times in the New Testament. Five of them by Paul and then this one here in Romans 12.1. And again, if Paul wrote Hebrews, which I'm inclined to think he did, but we can't say for certain, there's no reason to be dogmatic about it, uh, then it's a uniquely Pauline word. The verb form of agon, agonitsamai, is used seven times, five times by Paul and twice by the Lord Jesus. But this is the word that he used here that is translated race, race. The, the race that he's referring to is an intense spiritual battle, a fight, an agonizing fight. See, the world tells us that the ultimate goal, listen, the world tells us the ultimate goal of life is to be pain-free. And the more pain-free you can be in life, the more successful you are. You've, you've, you've won the victory, right? That's the goal. No, not according to the Bible. The Bible tells us the goal of this earthly life is to have as much faith as possible, to trust God as much as possible, regardless of the pain in the race that we face. See, a life of no suffering is just an illusion in a world under the curse of sin. It's a mirage. Stop looking for it, because you'll never find it until, as we see in the second hour, we see Jesus face to face. So instead, lean into it. Lean into it. Let's look at some of the usages of this word agon here. For example, it's used in 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, and it's translated conflict. As you know, we were bold in our God to speak the gospel of God to you in much conflict. That's that same word, agon, one of the six usages of it. Or in Colossians chapter 1, the verb form, agonizomai, he says, to this end I also labor and strive. I'm agonizing you know, through this ministry. Or in 1 Corinthians 9, again, the verb form, everyone who competes for the prize. That's agonizomai, the verb. Uh, is temperate in all things. Now he's talking here about rewards at the Bema judgment, not heaven or hell. Thankfully, we don't get heaven or hell based upon our endurance and how well we run the race. If that was the standard, I think we'd all be in trouble. But we get heaven, as we talked about last night, by grace. It's a free gift, totally, absolutely free, paid for by the blood of Christ our Savior. All we do is receive it. But as a believer... We then have a high calling to endure and to run this race successfully. Um, in 2 Timothy, Paul uses the word at the very end of his life, right before he was martyred, the last letter that he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. And he says, I have fought the good fight. Now this is an interesting verse because you'll notice the word race in our English Bible is used there. Different word. That's not the word agon. Yet the word agon is used in this verse, but it's translated fight. It's interesting, I have fought the good agonizing fight, I have finished the race. The word race here is the Greek word dramas, which just means course or mission in life. So Paul is saying here in the waning moments of his life, I have, 
I have finished my mission in life by fighting this agonizing fight of faith. Faith. That's how we win this race that the writer is talking about in Hebrews 12.1. So in other words, agony is what's set before us. You ever think about that? Let us run with endurance the agony that is set before us. We don't like that, but it's the reality. As long as we're topside this earth and this world under the sway of the wicked one, there's just no way around it. What's coming down the pike in your life? Agony. (laughs) Now, there's a lot of joy. We could preach whole messages on joy and and how to find joy and consider it pure joy, my brothers. I mean, this this is, we're focusing on one aspect here. But it would be naive to think that the goal of the Christian life is to not have any trials and struggles. As I said, the Christian life is not just some casual jog through the park. It's a grueling marathon that takes faith and endurance. And speaking of endurance, that's the other word that I wanted to mention here. This word endurance is the Greek word hupomone. It means patience fortitude, steadfastness. It's used 32 times in the New Testament. It's really a key word in the Christian life, one that we should be familiar with. James uses the word in the passage I referenced just a second ago when he says, let patience have its perfect work. Well, now now you're talking. Now that is what the Christian life is about. Hupamane, endurance. Um, In Romans 5, Paul uses the word and it's translated perseverance. He said, you need to recognize tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. He goes on to say in chapter 8, if we hope for what we don't see, we eagerly wait for it with what? Perseverance, steadfastness, fortitude. And the writer of Hebrews has already called his readers and us by extension today to live a life of endurance when in chapter 10 he said, you have need of endurance, plainly stated. Hupamane, same word. So, run with endurance the race that is set before us. The writer challenges us to endure this agonizing race of life because there are no shortcuts in the Christian life that will allow us to avoid suffering. It's a reality. Jesus promised it when He said, In the world you'll have tribulation. Remember that in the upper room with the disciples? Paul, going back to his last letter again, said, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So lean into the suffering. Instead of wishing and hoping for it to go away, we lean into it, accept it. Recognize the grace of God to help you through it. Now, this is never easy. And we wish there were something more profound with more teeth in it, so to speak, that we could say. I, I, a couple weeks ago, talked to a good friend of mine I've known for years and years, and, well, he's going through a rough time. And I called to check on him, and you know we were talking about how you know psychologists make those lists of eight or ten things that if you're facing any one or two of them, you're gonna you're really facing some intense stress in your life. Well, he's got like every one of them checked off. I mean, it's unreal what this friend of mine is going through. And I, I, I what could I say? <laughs> I mean, I I don't have a magic pill or wand. All I could say is lean in, lean in. God's grace is sufficient. And uh, that's part of the Christian life. But then number four, as I promised we would get to, and you know the passage well, it's not only you know, 
glancing at those witnesses, but it's gazing at the Savior. We've got to look to the Savior. Endurance and setting aside our sins and remembering those examples, that, that, that's not the only key. Ultimately, it comes down to fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's been the hero of this letter from the beginning, just like he's the hero of God's story. Um, remember, the book of Hebrews starts out with those famous words, God, who at various ways and at various times spoke to us and times passed through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us through his Son, who is the express image of his of his glory. So the writer comes back to that again and again, and he does so here, looking unto Jesus. And notice how he describes Jesus. First of all, he's the author and the finisher of our faith. The walk of faith begins with Jesus, grace in the first place, whoever believes in me has everlasting life, but it continues with Jesus. We walk by faith and not by sight. Remember what Paul said in Colossians, I don't have it on the screen, but he said, as you have received Christ Jesus our Lord, so walk ye in Him. Well, how did you receive Him in the first place? By faith. So how do you walk? By faith. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith and not uh, by sight. And, and ultimately it ends with faith, but you know, a walk of faith ends when faith becomes sight and we see Jesus face to face. And what a day that will be, we'll be talking about that when we shall see Him as he is in the uh, second hour. But he describes Jesus as one who has endured the cross. Not only is the author and finisher of our faith, but he endured suffering of the worst kind. He's been there. You know, endured there, that's the same word we looked at earlier, hupomane. It's the verb form of it. Um, it's, a, it's a Greek compound word, hupa, under, meno, abide. So it's to abide under. He, he abided under the torment of the cross in the same way that we should abide under the grace of God in the midst of suffering. So look to the Savior. What are you looking for? What are you looking at? Where's your focus? Is it on the suffering or is it on Jesus? And then finally, look forward to ultimate salvation. Look forward to ultimate salvation. And by salvation, I'm not referring to our deliverance from the penalty of sin, that's justification. Did you realize that uh, the word save, the verb, is used 108 times in the New Testament and 67%, that's two-thirds of the time, it has nothing to do with heaven or hell. We tend to think of saved in the context of heaven or hell because that's the way we use it in English. But in the Greek New Testament, it's used to refer to deliverance from sickness or danger or you're in harm's way or you're about to drown or your ship is going down or whatever it might be. And, and, and so the writer of Hebrews uh, speaks also of this ultimate deliverance from this sin-stricken world into the long-awaited kingdom. And he's been talking about that forward-looking motivation from the very beginning. He starts out in chapter 2 by reminding us that he has not put the world to come of which we speak. See, you, if you're looking to this life to find motivation... It's going to be lacking. Um, Paul says, if in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most pitiable. Motivation comes down to understanding the reality that 16% of the Bible has yet to be fulfilled. It's unfulfilled future prophecy. 
So I, I did a radio interview a while ago. I called it, talked about this, and I called it the 84% Club, referring to all those churches that shun end times prophecy. You never talk about it, don't preach it, don't like it, even make fun of it. Well, they're, they're 84 percenters. <laughs> they're content to study 84% of the Bible. Not me. I want to study the whole counsel of God, 100% of it, and 16% of it has yet to be fulfilled. And that is the world to come of which the writer was speaking. Hang on to your faith. Don't abandon Christianity. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Stick with the Lord. He's the one who saved you. And guess what? It will be worth it all when you see Jesus. So looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's a reference to His ultimate reign. See, he's, the throne of God right now at the right hand of God is the throne in waiting. Never confuse the heavenly throne with the earthly throne. And he wanted them to know that, that Jesus is on the edge of his seat waiting for that moment to come back and take the throne in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem in fulfillment of God's prophecies. All Old Testament prophecy speaks of a literal brick and mortar kingdom, a literal physical throne, a literal kingdom with boundaries geographically. And Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is going to take that throne someday. And when he does, as we shall talk about in our next session, he will make all things new. Jesus promised that he will come again and take that throne. And that's when they will experience ultimate deliverance. So we need to look forward to that ultimate deliverance. This is the words of Christ himself the day before he was betrayed in the garden on Wednesday night of Passion Week when he gave that famous sermon from the top of the Mount of Olives. And he said, when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and all the holy angels with him, then, then, he will sit on his throne. He's not there yet. You want to know why there's suffering? You want to know why there's so much war and unrest? It's because the Prince of Peace is not on the throne yet. But he will be someday. And he promised in his own words that he will. And we need to look forward to that ultimate salvation. So hang in there. It's, it's a tough race. It's a tough race. But a better day is coming. So... What I see from these two simple verses is learn from the saints, lay aside the sins, lean into the suffering, look to the Savior, and look forward to ultimate salvation. Rosie Ruiz did not finish strong. She chose the easy way out and forfeited the reward. What about you? The takeaway is this, don't quit until you're through. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for... Uh, this great exhortation from Hebrews 12, indeed from the whole book of Hebrews. Lord, uh, I pray that you'd raise up men, women, and young people, uh, and even in my own life, the ability to just endure, to fix our eyes on you, to recognize that life isn't fair, but we serve a good God, a faithful God, and Lord, that you are a gracious God. So we thank you for the grace that you've given us to run this race. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.